0: had enough of the been there done that ideas tired of too much talk and so little action rewind now and welcome to transformation and change radio with dr kathy obear where the vision of true equity inclusion courage and purpose meet powerfully dr kathy delivers with dynamic engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now.
1: Hello, welcome to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with the Center for Transformation and Change. I'm very excited about this show because no matter what my vision and dreams of wanting to be a change agent and create equity and inclusion, I realized I really wasn't that useful and helpful until I started realizing I had both marginalized and privileged identities. And the journey... It was quite a difficult, stressful journey to really first recognize privilege and then have willingness to own it and then heal from the internalized beliefs that I was smarter, better, I could keep going. So as always, delighted you joined us today for some practical, actionable steps in your own life and share with others. How do you recognize and own our privileges? Why is it so hard for so many? And today I am so grateful and delighted. That Dr. Alejandro Covarrubias has joined me. You may know Ale's work from many different places as um, faculty with the Social Justice Training Institute. He's part of the next gen faculty. You might know his work as a consultant and trainer out in the world, just really supporting and challenging folks to be their best selves and move to healing and liberation by owning privilege and marginalized identities, creating inclusion. And you might know his work from being an assistant professor. Higher Ed and Student Affairs and the Department of Leadership Studies at University of so- San,
2: Francisco. San Francisco. Yes.
1: <laughs> thank you. Well, welcome, Ale. Thanks thank for
2: joining. Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: So grateful for you here. Just to start, would you share a little bit more about yourself and why you believe, kind of what's your passion, for why you think we really need to own and claim our privilege? Again, not using it to create harm, but heal and be of service. What's your passion. But tell us a bit about you.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California, a place called Oxnard. Um, My family's still there, so I'm the middle of three. Um, My mom is retired from um, working in the school district in human resources, and my dad's still um, currently a superior court judge uh, for California. Um, I have an older brother who's a barber and a younger sister who's a social worker. Um, I think I really start with my family first because I think... Exploring my identities, exploring who I am as a person of color, uh, particularly as a man of color, really um, started with them. Um, as I think about why it's so important um, to kind of really honor both our privileged and our uh, marginalized identities comes from my conversations with my dad. Um, it comes to conversations with my mom and the really amazing women of color in my family who really pushed me to think more about what does it mean to be a man in the world? Um, and how do I show up for them? And how do I show up for my brother? Um, and now that I have a nephew and a niece, like how do I show up with them? Um, and then as I've moved throughout my career, um, was a student affairs professional for about 10 years. Uh, worked in residence life. I worked in um, multicultural affairs and gender and sexuality centers and was the co-director for the gender and sexuality center, the intercultural center um, here at the University of San Francisco for a few years before I moved into the faculty role. Um, so in the last three years, I've been an assistant professor um, here in the Department of Leadership Studies and working with my students who are really wanting to become student affairs professionals and go into the field of education and really make an impact, um, seeing the importance for them to really begin to own um, and understand the privileged identities. Um, I think similar to what you were saying, Kathy, it's about healing first. It's really like, how do I understand um, who I am in my full humanity? Um, Because I think we can so easily just focus in on our marginalized identity and forget that we um, hold privilege, particularly as I work in higher education. Education is a privilege. Um, And I think for folks who hold multiple privileged identities, it's so easy to just kind of swim in the normalcy of what we have created around power um, and not recognize the pain that swimming in that sort of dominant culture actually causes us um, and our own privilege identities. So for me, like my passion around um, not only understanding my own privilege identity, but working with others um, to really be accountable for their privilege is about humanizing each other and humanizing ourselves. Um, really entering into our ability to be in relationship with each other um, in ways that I think privilege often hinders us from engaging each other i am so relating and uh in so many ways
1: first of all what just hit me was i wish i had had you as faculty when i went through student affairs masters and or my doctoral work um, though i did get challenged own privilege and doctorate but in my master's and student affairs granted it was the early 80s so the times were different and mm-hmm. but i wasn't challenged to anything so and And the only time I was asked to look at anything around diversity and it was diversity was I think women and counseling and then a design facilitation course, which I chose to look at homophobia, both marginalized identities. And I know for me, that's how I entered the work and I stayed in the work of you all are oppressing me and I want to change the world. And it was so hard for me to own my privileged identities. And one more thing as you entered with family. I was so struck that I rarely talk about family. I don't know how much of it is kind of a white middle class culture, white privilege where individualism, pull yourself by your bootstraps, If you succeeded, it was because you worked hard. I The classism in that, the white supremacy in that, that I am so steep to this day uh, and it gets in my way so much that I had not. And still have not learned to value family. So I'm just struck with you talked about the pain, awesome sitting with the losses.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not to say I don't have incredible white and class privilege or that I experience classism and racism. And yet, in our privileged identities, we have to own it all. So was it ever hard for you? I mean, why is it so hard for people? Because as a white person and now class privilege, I still feel embarrassed to own how much class privilege I have or how much I earn or how much wealth I still, why is it hard for us to own our privileged identities?
2: Um, I think so. As I think about my process, it's always been hard um, and it continues to be hard. Um, And I think it's hard, um, one, because I think so our colleague, um, Dr. Reverend Jamie Washington, often says like power is seductive. You know, it it, it it makes, uh it draws us in and it's easier to often um, kind of live in that space where I feel like I earned this. I feel like I deserve this. Um, so when we're kind of confronted or when I've been confronted with like, yes, you've earned many things in your life and um, being a man has allowed me to move in the world differently than other folks, particularly, women and non-binary and trans folks, um, I can navigate the world in a different way. So how I access um, spaces, um, the, the, the amount of time that I get to take up and space I get to take up has allowed me to be a leader, to be vocal um, in ways that I didn't experience negative consequences. Um, and I think what's really difficult, particularly around whole understanding and being accountable for, for my privilege as, as a man, as a Christian, Um, is that it's so easy just to focus in on the individual level. So I can create stories and narratives of saying, oh, how have I experienced marginalization as a man? Um, How have I been um, isolated or ostracized for being a Christian? Um, And I can say like, oh, and I can have these single narratives of individuals, um, like women moving forward um, ahead of me because of their identity as a woman or as a trans person. Um, And those individual stories can over or kind of like supersede the systemic understanding of um, the larger system of sexism, the larger system of um, sort of Christian dominance in in the world, particularly in the US that I benefit from and don't always recognize that I benefit from. I often tell my students, like I've been in Jesuit education um, for most of my adult life. I went to Gonzaga University, I worked at Santa Clara University, my doctorate is here from University of San Francisco. So, my ability as someone who grew up Catholic and still identifies um, as Catholic, I can navigate this campus differently. I feel comfortable going into the church where we hold g- commencement and graduation ceremonies hmm. and sit on the altar without feeling uncomfortable. It's a very comfortable space. I used to read I used to be elector, I used to read the readings at mass growing up. That's a comfortable space for me. Um, where for many of my students, many of my colleagues, that space is a space of pain, a space of rejection. Um, so I need to honor how I'm moving in that space and just feel like I can be there um, and I play in a space that I think is actually sacred, where for others, that space is nothing more than a building. Um, so holding that tension and holding those multiple understandings, um, it took me a lot of time to understand that. Um, and it's easy for me to forget that that's, I sit in spaces of comfort all the time, while others are very uncomfortable and may not even be in the room.
1: Or well, as a white person, I really relate. I remember from early what you said just now, I'd see folks of color get consulting gigs or
2: mm. um,
1: or I'll be co-presenting with a person of color and the participants only talk about what they said. And so instead of recognizing the brilliance of the person, I, I would have these racist thoughts where well, they're only doing that because they're a person of color they I mean, there's, they only got ahead because, and so all those racist ideas and I got an insight as you were talking. So I don't know if this is anyway, it's, I'm going to be raggedy here, but I think I'm wondering if because of my pain from the homophobia and sexism that when I had access, to be a speaker, to get something, to be heard, I didn't see it as privilege. I saw it as I finally get access in my marginalized identities. It's about time. Mm-hmm. And until I was, and still am, but really did some healing work around homophobia and sexism and my kind of the internalized parts of both until I did some of that work, then I—I'm um, not sure I was able to recognize. Ooh, I might have gotten that job because of white privilege. I may have been thought highly of in the interview because I'm an extrovert and I'm white and I have a master's or whatever at the time. I got a job. Uh, I had never done the work that they asked me to do. It was in leadership. Read the book on a book on leadership the night before. Literally came to the interview, extroverting, charisma, and all kind of. All the different privileged identities are valued. And I got hired. How much of that was I they saw potential? How much of that was this glow of all my privileged identities?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think what like in, in hiring committees, um, in in admissions into universities, and really like as we think about access to elite spaces, because that's really really what it is. It's like, how do I like gaining access to an elite space like a job, like, I mean, as we both do um, consulting and speaking, that's an elite space because there's an assumed expertise that we hold. Um, Yeah, so much of that access we know is based in privilege um, to even get into that space. Um, So I, I, yeah, I think I often think about like, how qualified am I? Um, So I think this is where being able to hold both our privileged identities and marginalized identities at the same time is so critical. Because as a person of color, I've had to really kind of think through um, sort of the internalized oppression around like, am I really qualified for this? And struggle through like, no, I am qualified for this. Then also as a man, as someone who grew up middle class, um, recognizing was I given access to this space? even though I maybe wasn't as qualified as someone else. Um, So really kind of holding that intention of like qualification and enoughness um, gets so complex. But like you were saying, until I started doing some of that healing work, um, both around being a person of color and around what it means to be a man um, and and what I feel like I I should have access to, um, it wasn't until I started working both that I was much clearer on, no, I'm not actually qualified for this. And I shouldn't be applying for this job or no I am qualified for this and I got passed over because of these systemic things so I was actually able to make more sense of my life once I was able to do some healing and and investigative work around myself in the the dominant and subordinated spaces.
1: That's related to something you said earlier which you know how do we get from my space you know, I deserve more because my marginalization is such pain and rage and anger to ooh, let's look at class privilege, non-disabled privilege, white privilege, U.S. born privilege, citizenship privilege. The systemic part you just talked about, again, it wasn't until I was in my doctorate. Yes, I studied history, so I got in undergrad some understanding of some of the racism and white supremacy, but no one ever really that I could understand helped me see systemic dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so much of, as a white person, even in class, I had at the individual level, like you already talked about. How do you think we can look at systemic? How do people either in and formal education, but truly outside of that, because so many, what, 25% of the nation in the US have some type of four-year degree, is that accurate? Something like that?
2: Something around that, yeah. Maybe a little bit less, somewhere around there, yeah.
1: Now, some do have a two degree. Mm-hmm. But how can people learn about this, about the systemic dynamics? Because there's so much resistance. I
2: know there wasn't me. Yeah, I, mean, I think part of it is, and it's just, and it's something that we, we teach in the Social Justice Training Institute, um, is panning the world and really kind of paying attention and looking for patterns um, beyond ourselves um, so how do we begin to notice, um, in our organizations, in our families, um, how are particular groups of people being treated differently? Um, so like, as I, so I, I come from a really big family. Um, my dad is one of nine. My mom is one of six. I think on my dad's side, we're just over 105, 110 people. Um, um yeah, cousins, great grand, like great grandbabies, great, great grandbabies. um, And there's patterns, there's patterns across gender. There's patterns, um, you know, across like skin tone um, that we notice within the family and how how we treat each other. And that's sort of paying attention to that, like, and how how do we begin to think about ourselves? Um, As I think about organizations that I've been a part of, um, I think one of the easiest patterns to really pay attention to is looking at who is staying longest, Hmm. who is leaving within the first three years um, and in and, and most organizations that I've been a part of um, it has been women of color who are leaving institutions who are leaving organizations um, within the first three years that's not to say that there aren't women of color who have been at an institution for 15 20 30 years but when I see patterns of like young women of color professionals leaving every few years and rotate rotating out of the same position that shows me there's a systems level um, analysis that needs to be had.
1: So you reminded me that many organizations, whether they're nonprofit, K-12, corporations, higher ed, generally do some type of climate survey of employee satisfaction. Now, Mm -hmm. a lot of them may not have an inclusion social justice lens, much less truly here's a jargon for folks disaggregate meaning mm-hmm. of all the people that fill it out if they can put in their different identities then compare white to folk of color folks in higher hierarchical levels compared you know higher level to folks in quote lower organizational years of experience that you just named you can begin to look at sex assigned at birth male female mm-hmm. um, if they can ask about gender identity cisgender nonconforming so Again, some people get nervous even to start to think about asking heterosexual, queer. Mm -hmm. So if they can disaggregate that data or do focus groups afterwards, they might then get some, oh, life here is different for X. It's not just individual. The other thing you reminded me of when I was at University of Massachusetts Amherst, a powerful activity that was something I experienced and then helped participate and create uh, was called the gallery activity. And the folks at the institutional level had examples of oppression. So if we did a racism weekend workshop, housing, wow. healthcare, care, legal, um, quote, justice, um, employment, and we kept going, education. And I'll bet 10 different institutions and current and historical examples of oppression that I had not ever paid attention to. And so that was probably the first time that I was like, immersed and inundated mm-hmm. with that much data.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think what, what you hit upon too is really important, really understanding history mm. um, and, and recognizing that the history that we've learned, particularly in formal education, um, has been shaped and has been told from a very particular perspective um, and is often controlled by um, the dominant group telling a dominant narrative. Um, so really particularly in this current um, sort of political, cultural um, time where we have access to so much information, um, finding those different histories um, and digging a little bit deeper um, around, you know, what, what are the different, like what are the histories beyond um, the little sort of like highlighted box that you got in, in your US history class? Because, um, you know, there's the, 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 full, the full page narratives And then there's like the little highlighted box about, oh, let's talk about um, when women got the right to vote. Um, And really, can we contain that whole history in that little box? Um, Can we talk about um, the civil rights movement in that little box? Like, how do we begin to really understand those multiple histories? Um, And I think one of the difficult things that, or one of the things that makes it difficult for folks to own their privilege is we can look at history and distance ourselves from that. Again, on the individual level, um, you know, it's easy for for men for men to say like, oh, that's how like men in the past acted. You know, I'm I'm not that man anymore, or like men when men don't do that anymore. Um, but when we really look at men's behaviors, it hasn't changed that much. And the history of how men have been allowed to to behave and be in the world um, has shaped what allows men to be right now. Um, the way that Christian the way that Christian communities have been so entangled and intertwined into the government um, in the United States, that history has allowed, on the systemic level, um, for as we talk about the freedom of religion, um, the protection, the, the protection of religious practices. We really, what we're really talking about, is the protection and freedom of Christian practices. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to understand there's a bigger system that allows Christians and, and Christian dominance. Based in our history, to be free in their practices, to be free in my practices, um, when culturally and systemically um, non-Christian religious practices are still um, oppressed, demonized, um, and kind of put to, to put to the side. So,
1: on that thread, studying the murder, violence towards uh, women, northeast um, quote, seem to be witches. So the misogyny and the patriarchy there, and then asking the question, how is that similar or different than the sexual violence that's happening, women speaking up, Me Too movement, what's happening in our organizations. And literally just today, saw something on Facebook, someone had taken a snapshot of how that box of how Columbus's experience in the lands we now call United States or America Mm
0: -hmm.
1: was taught in their child's elementary school and put out a challenge on facebook to everyone i just reposted said find out how it's being taught in your local schools and then intervene at the school board level and so that's just one example of how we can own our privilege in this case is the colonizer settler group white for me and then um how do we get active today and the third part you references. So how is the oppression genocide of indigenous Native Americans happening in this lands we call the U.S. as well as around the world? Now some people listening will go, hey, I work in a corporation. I'm hired to do, you know, HR or whatever. Why do I care? So why should they care about understanding history and how it plays out today if they're about hiring or about compensation or they're a manager in an organization in education or something, why should they care?
2: Well, I mean, I think, so as we think about histories, there's multiple histories, right? So like how 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 well do you know the history of your organization? Right, how well, and so for me, a lot of it is um, context. How do I understand my context? Um, and history is such a big part of that. So understanding the history of your state and how does, how has the history of um, hiring laws and policies, on a statewide level, how has that impacted your organization and how you think about what you're allowed to do? Um, as you think about like kind of living in a state of like who are protect who what identities are protected legally in your state? Um, is your state protecting? Um, is it protected just across race and ethnicity, if at all? Does it protect um, different sexual identities? Does it protect um, like different gender identities and gender expressions? or can folks still in your state be fired simply for being out? And if you understand how that history has evolved, then how does that shape how, how you function in your role? Are you able to create policies that are more inclusive within your organization as an HR person, um, knowing that you might, and this is sort of a um, sort of very a business approach to equity, but if your policies and your hiring practices aren't inclusive, are you losing some of the best talent that you have in your organization? Are you actually being less effective as an organization, whatever that be, whether it be again, education or um, in corporations or nonprofits, like are you losing the best people because your policies don't support um, that diversity of experiences of identities of knowledge in the room? Um, So are you just kind of staying within, um, sort of this one way of thinking, um, because you're, you're too afraid to branch out. I
1: love, so looking at history at all those different levels could help us be more effective in whatever role we hark, because we might be perpetuating the status quo, which isn't serving the folks we're here to serve. And actually we could still be perpetuating the privileges that we're not even paying attention to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Before we go to break, we have a lot more one want to talk about. I just love you. You were so fun. So brilliant. Could you tell people how to get in contact with you? If they want to ask you to come to their organization, hire you do keynotes programs, how can they get in touch with you?
2: Sure. Absolutely. So you can reach me um, at my website, which is Cova Rubius Consulting. So my last name is C-O-V-A-R-R-U-B-I-A-S consulting.com. Or you can reach me at my email which is A is an Apple, F is in Frank, Covarubias, again, C-O-V-A-R-R-U-B-I-A-S at gmail.com.
1: Absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. And your information as well as mine is on the website about where you can also get this link if you want to share it with others. And some of the resources that you can go on there and get resources that you can get access for free as well as share is my book, But I'm Not Racist, Tools for Well-Meaning Whites. So that's my website, drkathyrobert.com backslash I'm not racist, all one word, I'm not racist. Same website, backslash racebook, lots of supporting materials, including book club guides. This work is really geared for whites and our privilege to do our own work. And I think people in their other privileged identities can still get a lot out, even though I'm focused on racism. And then I have a webinar, Interrupting Racism, so backslash racism webinar. So again, drkathyobar/backslash racism webinar and if you'd like to learn more with me then my two courses you can learn about dr Kathy bear backslash events my navigating difficult situations course and designing facilitating powerful workshops all of our information is on the web we will see you in 30 seconds or a few moments i guess
0: to see your life from an angel's perspective book a personal consultation with claire candy huff angelic walk-in angel ariel at angel healing house Candy provides intuitive counseling, Reiki, and angel readings in person in Los Angeles or nationally and internationally via phone or Skype. She will channel the practical tools you need to transform your life. Call now, 831-277-3716, or visit angelhealinghouse.com.
2: Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? (laughs) Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time.
3: A word of caution. If you prefer the status quo and you are not interested in improving every aspect of your life, THIS BOOK WILL TRIGGER THE SHIFT OUT OF YOU. THE TRUTH IS FUNNY, SHIFT HAPPENS IS AVAILABLE NOW. AUTHOR COLETTE STEFFEN BRINGS THE POWERFUL KNOWLEDGE AND LIFE-CHANGING ENERGY AND EMPOWERMENT FROM THE RADIO AIRWAVES TO THE PAGES OF HER NEW BOOK. TO GET YOUR COPY IN PAPERBACK OR E-BOOK, VISIT THETRUTHISFUNNY.COM TODAY.
2: ARE YOU READY TO SHIFT YOUR CURRENT BELIEFS ABOUT DEATH? FROM DEBILITATING PAIN AND LOSS Follow Angie Corbett Kuiper as she shares that through choice, present moment awareness and keeping an open mind that anything is possible, even in death. Tune in to Beyond Proof Radio with Angie, redefining death and loss every first and third Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more, visit
3: BeyondProof.com. The vibration of change.
1: Hello, welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with Dr. Alejandro Ale Covarrubias. So much brilliance, wisdom. I'm getting some insights and all my privileged identities and how can we show up and do our work as privileged folk and all our identities and how come it's so hard. And uh, before the break, we were talking about learning history and I was reminded that Howard Zinn has this great book, The People's History of the U.S., something like that. Mm -hmm. And then there's this great book, I don't remember, the author, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Mm -hmm. And I was realizing over the break that I think they both identify as white men, but I'm not sure. And then you helped me remember Dr. Beverly Tatum, and there might be other folks. But I just wanted to challenge the folks listening, who are the sources of your history? And I love that you said go outside, whether there's podcasts, to something that's not been historically published because the publishing system has historically and still does privilege folk and privileged identities. So the challenge, whatever your privileged identities, get more information about history and current state from folks in the corresponding marginalized identities who have a social justice lens because there are some folks published and who have podcasts and are on mainstream and cable TV that have marginalized identities and are just perpetuating the same type of oppressive messages that I still see many places. So welcome back, Ale, to Transformation Change Radio. So excited! Yeah,
2: so I, I think just to um, yeah. So just to like another piece around the like learning histories, and I love like like as you were saying, Kathy, like to connect it to present day um, experiences. That particularly when we're from coming from our privileged identities, as we learn about histories, as we connect it to present day, that we're not just focused in on the stories of trauma and marginalization. Good. And we're also paying attention to the stories of, of triumph, the stories of celebration, um, and just the everyday stories of people. Um, because that's what we we hear everyday stories of white people all the time. Um, We see that in sitcoms. We see that in in multiple forms of media. Um, We see men just being kind of men. We see Christians just being Christians. Um, We see able-bodied folks just being able-bodied folks. Um, But we don't always see that that, that narrative of just people just being. Um, So often, particularly, I think when we see um, trans people in the media, um, it's often this tragic story of loss, of often death. Um, But we don't just see trans couples and trans people just being. Um, So making sure that as you're engaging in in your education and learning history and present day, it's not just these, um, you're not going to the extremes of just pain and overcoming, but you're also just seeing the everyday life of folks.
1: I love that. And as you were talking, I am realizing that all the heroes, and I gendered that, with a quote male identity because I saw very few female identified folks, especially across racialized identities, but the few I saw might have been white or Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth. And so also who current day and historically, how do we expand so we realize the change leaders that were there Mm -hmm. that didn't get in our history books and so many women of color As an example, civil rights Mm -hmm. that were just silenced because of the men of color, and some whites were put in the forefront. Um, The other thing, as you just said, are we teaching media literacy? Are we teaching our youth and are we learning how to critique what we're absorbing Mm -hmm. consciously, unconsciously through ads, through videos, through podcasts, through TV, movies? And really beginning, as you name the skill of panning, pay attention now. People call it observing with an inclusion lens. So how are people in privileged and marginalized identities portrayed in a snapshot moment? And overall, in everything you're seeing or in the whole 20-minute video? Um, That kind of leads to another wonder I have is, because folks could be feeling pretty overwhelmed by us. I'm having fun. and You're kind of like me. I'm noticing that when we get going, we're like and this and this. Mm-hmm. And I forget that areas that I've not done much privileged work, U.S. citizenship, quote, born in the U.S., that I feel scared, nervous. I don't know what I'm doing that's still oppressive at the individual level. I haven't invested enough time to understand the history. And so I'm afraid I'll do something wrong. So why is it Why should we? What's the impact if we're willing to own both our marginalized and our privileged identities and do the work of healing in all of our intersecting identities? How is that benefiting us individually? And particularly, how does it benefit others we're
2: working with? Yeah, Um, I think it benefits most benefits us on the individual level because we begin to let go of this idea of perfectionism. And I think for so many folks in the privilege identities, I know for me, as I've tried to work around my privilege identity as someone who's able-bodied, um, and I think as I begin to explore more and more around like my class privilege, um, so much of that dominant narrative of, of, of like, I should know, um, that I should be the expert about everything. Um, I think that's there's a lot of masculinity in that as well. Um I get so tied to being perfect and not feeling like I can make a mistake or should make a mistake. It actually keeps me from engaging in the conversation altogether. Um, So by holding and really beginning to own both my privileged and marginalized identities, I actually begin to disrupt this really, in some ways toxic narrative of perfectionism Hmm. because it keeps me from engaging in authentic relationships. It keeps me from saying like, "I, I, I probably am gonna make a mistake. In fact, I know I'm going to make a mistake. And I think so much of the conversation and in some ways um, the buildup around social justice and inclusion work is, I can't make a mistake. I have to be perfect. Um, Instead of, and I think this is a much healthier approach and one in which, again, owning both our privilege and, and subordinate identities is that I'm going to make mistakes. So it's not about doing it perfectly. It's about how do I engage and develop the skills of accountability. Um, and to me, like that's what it does. And it, so that that when we enter with this approach around accountability and holding both privilege and marginalized identities, I become more authentic. I become more human. And then so do my interactions with my community. And then our organizations can actually have deeper conversations. I think without being able to hold and really honor both privilege and marginalized identities in organizations, we stay at a very superficial level. Um, we don't actually know each other. We don't actually engage each other. Um, and it hinders us from doing the good work that we want to do. Um, as we think about how groups work, there's the sort of content level, the task level. So we can be really focused on the task. Um, but there's also the process level, the group dynamic level. And if the group dynamic is hindered, our communications is hindered, our, Um, ways of supporting each other is hindered. If we can't engage in conflict and on the group level, then the task level will never get done.
1: I'm so relating to my privilege identity. I'm scared of being called out.
2: Mm -hmm. Having any of my
1: behavior shown to me. And I've been working lately with some groups. Folks in their privilege identities will say, you know, that person of color attacked me. And this language that I've heard for years, particularly in white caucuses, because we whites get more honest when it's just us doing our <laughs> healing and accountability work. And just to really engage the language of, well, let's look at the behavior. Well, the person of color gave me feedback. Well, what was, you know, we're tone policing. Well, what was their tone? Well, they were angry and aggressive. I say, well, let me tell you how I heard them. I heard them clear and engaging. And so how come you cannot call me attacking right now when I'm clear and engaging you as a white person? So. What I know is, uh, this was a new insight, that the guilt that I carry and the shame from how much privilege I have, from not owning that I have what I have because of privilege and not because I worked hard and pulled myself by bootstrap, then mm-hmm. I carry this guilt and shame, and then I'm into perfectionism, can't make a mistake, and then blame people of, uh, quote, less status of privilege, whether it's class or people of color or someone who's an immigrant in this country that challenges my xenophobia, then I just, I go to fragility and disappear, which is another way of saying what you were saying, but I got the insight that I gotta heal the guilt and shame some of many people's work, but but Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown's work has been so well connecting to so many, I think millions. So if you're not familiar with her work, um, people with a lot of white privilege and class privilege particularly Um, have connected really well with Brene Brown.
2: Well, and so I think one of the parallels that I'm I'm finding, um, as you kind of talk about how white folks get a little more honest, uh, when it's just white folks in the room, um, and sort of the the idea like you're attacking me, um, as I work with men around masculinity um, and healthy masculinity and like working particularly with cisgender men, um, the way that men will often push back against women and and trans and non-binary folks is they're too emotional. Um, so the, the, so our kind of our escape is they're emotional because masculinity um sort so nor, of normative masculinity has really sort of demonized emotion um so we i can say like oh you're too emotional i need you to come to me as a woman as a trans person as a non-binary person even as another man and i need you to be a little more rational um i need you to take the emotion out of it um And many men do not understand how they have denied themselves the ability to be fully human and not actually engage in emotion. Um, And many men lack the skills um, to not only manage their own emotions, but engage authentically with the emotions of other people. Um, So actually, when when men say, I need you to be more rational, um, it's actually more about their discomfort with emotion than the emotion that's been given to them. They don't know, like many men, including myself, don't always know how to handle that emotional moment. And because of our dominance, we just push it down. Um, so it's a way, in, and it, we've we've normalized that as behavior, and particularly in organizations. We've sort of, in organizations, particularly in hyper organizations, we've erased emotion as if it does not belong in in an organization of people when we are humans and we are emotional and it needs to show up.
1: So whether that's out of, because I'm relating as white, class mm-hmm. privilege, hierarchical, I see folks with more privileged positions and organizations fit in much more. Well, they don't, we won't hire them if they don't fit into that box of right. normative culture, privileged, what we say, and so much of emotion. So this is getting at how we are hurt by buying into the systemic, as you dominant narratives, you call in it, whether it's race, class, male. Sexes. So the trap I think that I know I have fallen into, I, and I hear other whites do, is well, you see, I'm hurt by racism. So I experience racism too. And equating, and you mentioned this earlier, the individual hurt of losing my humanity. Well, mm-hmm. I sold my humanity for white privilege. It's a yes. very different, I didn't lose my humanity. I chose white supremacist attitudes, believing I was smarter and better than people of color. I chose those classist behaviors. I did it myself and through other folk under the bust, I didn't choose re- authentic relationships. I chose the inauthenticity of privilege so I could get a head quote. So I guess there were two questions in there. How do you, How do you help us who are still at that stuck at the individual level? See, folks of color say racist things too or men that say, see women, they say sexist things. In fact, men, women are so angry at men, we can't get ahead. They're all women are the majority now. So how do you, whether it's how do you, or Christians that say people are so anti-Christian now, we don't have any privilege. There's so much prejudice towards us. How do you support folk when they're resisting in my language at that yeah. dynamic?
2: Absolutely. And I think, so for me being in higher education, that sort of uh, particularly around um, sort of the gender work that's happening in higher ed and the, and really that's forced into a gender binary. Um, there's so much rhetoric coming from so many people, um, not just men um, and not just women or, and sometimes even trans folks, but like this idea like, we really need to be programming towards men. Men are now the minority, men are now being disserved in higher education. Um, like that's still all rooted in patriarchy. Um, so I think as we begin to have the conversation around um, like how our privileged groups may be experiencing disadvantages um, within these systems, I think one, it's again, like always raising it back up to that systems level. Um, for me, as I do work, work with men around masculinity and higher education, like there is no doubt the data says it: men and men of color in particular are are struggling in higher education um we're, we're not graduating at the same rates um, we're not enrolling at the same rates but that isn't the the cause of that is not women the cause of that is not trans and, bi- and non-binary folks hindering men's cis men's success it's the way in which men have been socialized around what it means to be smart what it means to care about things, Hmm. Um, particularly. So as I work with college men, but also as I I work with men, um, I I did some work around gender with um, a startup company um, last year and working with a group of men there, um, men have been socialized not to care. And again, this is connected to their emotion. So when I don't care um, or when I pretend like I don't care, I actually don't work as hard and I'm not as invested, even though I really care and it's about fear of failure. Um, there's a huge this idea that men um' we're really afraid of failing we're afraid of, we're really afraid of rejection as are most people so we hide it with apathy so if we can break through that sort of barrier with men and just say like hey actually this thing that this idea of like playing it cool and like pulling back all the time that's really about masculinity And if we can address that, then when you show up and you care about something, then you invest in it and you might try a little bit differently or harder and be okay with rejection or failure a little bit. None of that has to do with how women treat men. None of that has to do with how transgender and non-binary folks treat men. That's all about how men have been socialized and think about themselves. Um, So for me, like, as I work with around dominance, it's really looking at how has the larger system that I still benefit from, um, made me think that I am the victim, and allows me to play the victim, when in reality, the sort of apathy thing, I can be apathetic, and I'm still getting jobs. I can be apathetic, and I'm still getting promotions, because that's now prized um, within the system. What you're me
1: of is, I feel and felt empty, like I didn't deserve. So I only in quiet moments, occasionally, what I realized as a white person, class privilege, all my different privilege identities, I really didn't deserve what I got. And I either had to squelch mm-hmm. that voice by saying, see, people of color are getting access and they're winning, or I had to see the truth of the systemic. I yeah. love your, um, if you could say more, I love this. I wrote down the kind of what's in it for me, self-interest. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I wonder if early on, when folks are beginning to look at privilege, it's hard to think it's about dismantling oppression and that will benefit all. Now that might be your core value. So part of it might be you get to live every day closely aligned with your core values. But I also think more and more folk kind of that malleable middle. How can we help folk realize that they will benefit so much if they're willing to in addition to healing marginalized and talking about this in every organization there is organized affinity space workshops for folks to come together to do healing work and awareness around our privileged identities
2: and how we've been hurt by privilege yeah absolutely i think early on when i was working um with men i would often use the sort of like do it for your mom do it for your sister um you know do it for you know, the the woman in your life that you love, very binary, very, very binary. Um, And what I realized really quickly, because even that's in some ways, that's how I entered doing gender equity work was I was still being the savior. Mm -hmm. I was still like framing this around being um, the knight in shining armor, which again is still grounded in patriarchy. I relate. Um, You know, and I think for, as I work with uh, Christian folks around, you know, how do we, you know, this, like having this broader idea of, um, religious freedom and understanding multiple truths in the world about the universe and how it works and making, meaning, meaning making. That um, in some ways, is still about like, I'm still saving me, literally, I'm still bringing, at the end of the day, my goal is still really to bring you into my dominant group, my Christian life. Um, so I've really begun to switch that. So as I engage men, um, it really is that those that self exploration of how have you been hurt by other men? Um, how, how have you been hurt by this bigger system? Um, and in what ways have you also hurt other people? Um, actually, I do this activity where I, I ask men to name um, three, three men that have shaped them in a positive way and three men who have negatively impacted them.
3: Hmm. And then ask
2: them to reflect on, are you sure sh- showing in of the behaviors as the positive are your behaviors really kind of mirrored in the negative and um, we call it circle and square so ask them in, in a positive way who would put you in their circle right now hmm. and whose square are you living in right now so it's kind of being able to recognize the outer pieces that oh this is how i've been impacted both positive and negative and am i enacting some of the things that have actually pushed me away from myself Um, So to me, that's a very like tangible way to get um, men to really engage in their privilege and how they've been shaped by it. And and I I feel like that could be an activity that we could do with other dominant folks. Yeah.
1: As you just powerfully said, come back to yourself, who you really are. Do you want to be a person that replicates this privilege, marginalized, living every day, knowing that you may have gotten a good bit of what you have because of that? Or do you want to live true to your core values and be a part of creating equity, inclusion for all? And that involves looking at all the privilege we get, mm-hmm. the systems that promote that, the history, but current day, and then being willing to put your privilege on the line and use it yeah. to get more folks engaged in these conversations. We need to, I wish we had more time. Yeah. <laughs> Any final tip? And as you then remind people how to find you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, final tip as far as, as I've done this work for myself, um, before I went that's not true. As I learned that before I go out and try to work with folks and help them understand their privilege, I had to do the self work. Um, and even as I've gone out and every time I do uh, a men's retreat, every time I do, um, you know, a caucus group or an affinity space around Christian being Christian, I don't enter that space as the leader even though I may be facilitating or holding that space, I enter that as an authentic participant. um, Because there's so much more that I need to learn about how I hold privilege, about how um, privilege manifests in me. So for me to set myself above anyone from the privileged group means that I begin to disconnect myself and I actually reinforce privilege in that process. so I never, I never try to see myself, and I, and it takes a lot of self-reflection to separate myself from other men, you know, from other, you know, middle-class and upper-class folks, um, because oftentimes the things that most frustrate me in them are the things that most frustrate me about me. Um, so really, just being that self-reflective, um, authentic person that I'm not an expert in men and masculinity's work, um, and I bring a, a particular lens and experience that. Um, I think benefits a community of men to understand who we are. Um, so if you'd like to reach me, um, again, my email address is on the website, and uh, uh, covarubiusconsulting.com is another way to get to kind of know me and my work, and reach out to me when you can.
1: And Ale, thank you so much. I just did a webinar on whiteness, which if folks want to email me, I can or get on my website. You can download it for free. I'm doing a mini course starting October 18th. Look for whites about whites and how do we show up in the moment but how do we support other whites doing our healing work, learning about privilege, our own racist white supremacist behaviors and attitudes. And as you were talking, I don't know if you have webinars but I would love to see and if I can support you in any way and all your different privilege work just. um, And again, I'm here First Monday of every month on Transformation Change Radio. And thank you again, Dr. Ale Covarrubias And you can thank find you out know. anything on my resources is drkathyobert.com backslash events for all the different courses and free resources. And join me in November where Marta Escaline and Diana Noriega. We're going to come look at how they are intentionally organizing to challenge the systems of SATs and other standardized testing and get more folks to recognize how those privileged folks by race and class and have done incredible damage by racism and classism and in New York City, as well as at Rutgers, ways that they are challenging the systems and incredible access changes. So Ale Kovarubias, Dr. Kovarubias, thank you so much. And I wish you you all the best. See you all in a month. Have a good week.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Kathy Obear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change. Motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobeir.com.